was a very classic case of boy meets girl. They met at a well, and I, I reckon he just thought she was pretty. And so uh, went home to meet her dad and told, uh, told her dad that he wanted to marry her. And that he would work for seven years to earn the right for her hand in marriage. And then came the wedding day. Finally, after seven, probably, for him, probably seven brutally long years. And then came the wedding day. And then he realizes, wait, this isn't my precious Rachel. This is, this is her big sister. What's going on here? And so he goes to her father and says, Uncle Laban, what's going on here? Well, the older sister gets to marry first. That's how we do it in these parts. And so as you can imagine, it wasn't the happiest wedding night that he ever could have imagined. It wasn't exactly what he had labored seven years for. But he set that disappointment aside and then he labored for seven more years so that he could finally get the hand of Rachel. And so then we fast forward now to Genesis chapter 31 in the story of Jacob and Leah and Rachel. And in Genesis 31, we begin with verse 17. Then Jacob put his children and his wives on camels, and he drove all his livestock ahead of him, along with all the goods he had accumulated in Paddan Aram, to go to his father Isaac in the land of Canaan. When Laban had gone to shear his sheep, Rachel stole her father's household gods. Moreover, Jacob delivered, or excuse me, moreover, Jacob deceived Laban, the Aramean, by not telling him he was running away. So he fled with all he had, crossed the Euphrates River, and headed for the hill country of Gilead. On the third day, Laban was told that Jacob had fled, taking his relatives with him. He pursued Jacob for seven days and caught up with him in the hill country of Gilead. Then God came to Laban, the Aramean, in a dream at night and said to him, Be careful not to say anything to Jacob, either good or bad. Jacob had pitched his tent in the hill country of Gilead when Laban overtook him, and Laban and his relatives camped there too. Then Laban said to Jacob, What have you done? You've deceived me, and you've carried off my daughters like captives in war. Why did you run off secretly and deceive me? Why didn't you tell me so I could send you away with joy and singing to the music of timbrels and harps? You didn't even let me kiss my grandchildren and my daughters goodbye. You have done a foolish thing. I have the power to harm you, but last night the God of your father said to me, Be careful not to say anything to Jacob, either good or bad. Now you have gone off because you long to return to your father's household. But why did you steal my gods? 
Jacob answered Laban, I was afraid because I thought you would take your daughters away from me by force. And so we see here in Genesis 31 that Jacob longs to go back home. And so he loads everybody up, puts them on camels, drives the livestock ahead of him, and they are headed home. And Rachel, I'm sure by this time, knows who Jacob worships. That he worships Yahweh. The God that he was taught to love growing up. And so it might seem a little strange that on the way out the door, dad's off shearing the sheep. And so she goes and then takes all of his idols. Only one God, but just in case. It seems that Rachel wanted back up. She wanted something else just to make sure. And how does human nature change? Well, we fast forward for a good bit of time and we find ourselves in Acts 17. We find ourselves... Uh, in a place called Athens. And you don't have to have studied philosophy to know that the Greeks were known in ancient times for their philosophers. This is the place that gave us Plato and Socrates and Aristotle and many, many others. And you will see from what Luke writes here in Acts 17 that even in the first century, they were still taking up the practice of philosophy, sitting around and doing nothing but discussing ideas. And so we begin in Acts 17 with verse 16. While Paul was waiting for them in Athens... He was greatly distressed to see that the city was full of idols. So he reasoned in the synagogue with both Jews and God-fearing Greeks, as well as in the marketplace day by day with those who happened to be there. A group of Epicurean and Stoic philosophers began to debate with him. Some of them asked, what is this babbler trying to say? Others remarked, he seems to be advocating foreign gods. They said this because Paul was preaching the good news about Jesus and the resurrection. Then they took him and brought him to a meeting of the Areopagus where they said to him, May we know what this new teaching is that you are presenting. And so Paul has been letting his light shine. He has been preaching the truth. He would go to the synagogues and he would go in, in the, that place and he would reason with people. No doubt, knowing the Hebrew Scriptures the way he did, himself a former Pharisee, that he would be able to sort of unpack all that was said about the coming Messiah. 
And then he would explain to them that the Messiah did come, that he died for the sins of all humanity. And on the third day, he rose from the dead. He's preaching the good news. But he didn't limit it to the synagogue. He would go out into the marketplace, into this bustling place of public activity. And he is telling them the good news of Jesus. And then, of course, being these thinkers like they are, these philosophers, they're saying, what's he babbling about? What's, what's, oh, he seems to be advocating foreign gods. So at least they're interested, though. He's planted some seeds. And they invite him to speak to them at this next meeting. Verse 22, Paul then stood up in the meeting of the Areopagus and said, People of Athens, I see that in every way you are very religious, for as I walked around and looked carefully at your objects of worship, I even found an altar with an inscription to an unknown God. So you are ignorant of the very thing you worship, and this is what I am going to proclaim to you. I imagine at this point, church, he's got their attention, right? When somebody says, hey, you're unaware of something. You're ignorant, but that's okay. Ignorance can be fixed. Listen up, and I'm about to tell you the truth. Verse 24, the God who made the world and everything in it is the Lord of heaven and earth and does not live in temples built by human hands. And he is not served by human hands as if he needed anything. Rather, he himself gives everyone life and breath and everything else. From one man he made all the nations that they should inhabit the whole earth. And he marked out their appointed times in history and the boundaries of their lands. God did this so that they would seek him and perhaps reach out for him and find him, though he is not far from any one of us. Church, i got to read that again because I think that is just so awesome and comforting right there. God did this so that people, they, would seek him and perhaps reach out for him and find him, though he is not far from any one of us. Paul explaining that God wants a relationship with the people he made in his image. Church, he wants a relationship with us. And so it's a beautiful thing when he says, he's not far from us. All we have to do is write, we've talked about it in recent weeks, we just have to have faith. We have to believe first and foremost. And then we have to reach out for him. And he's ready to receive us. Verse 28, For in him we live and move and have our being, as some of your own poets have said, we are his offspring. And so Paul, now, preaching to this audience, is saying, hey, walked around and I saw this, uh, I saw this, uh, you know, all these statues that you've got. You're obviously religious people. You understand the concept of worshiping something greater than yourselves. But as I walked around, I noticed that you even had one that said to an unknown God, as if to say, you know, there may be a God that we have not conceived of, and so let's make sure we don't anger him. 
And see, there's the problem, right, church? A God that we humans have conceived of. And that is the problem with idolatry. It's something conceived by humans. And we've talked about idolatry before. And I'm not the first to explain that modern day idolatry looks a bit different than it would have in an ancient pagan society. That modern day idolatry is a lot more subtle. Modern day idolatry is just, it's simply anything that gets in the way of us having the full relationship with God that we can. Modern day idolatry can be going shopping and filling your house, your apartment with too much stuff. Any of you that have ever read any of Dave Ramsey's works, you know, he, he uses that term stuff-itis. You know, the, the, the allure of stuff. And I've got this disease, it's stuff-itis, and stuff-itis is simply the idea that if I gather more stuff, I'm going to be what? I'm going to be happy, I'm going to be fulfilled. And then what happens? It doesn't take long for the new to wear off the stuff. And then what do we got to do? We got to go out and get more stuff. And then we got so much stuff that people have to build storage facilities. Think about that. We got so much stuff. People people can't park in their garages anymore because their garages are filled with stuff. And then when the garage gets filled with stuff and we, we got more stuff and we don't want to get rid of our stuff because it's our stuff. And so then there's people that build storage facilities and they charge us $50, $75, $100 a month to do what? To store our stuff. And there's no end to it. There's no end to it. And so you may be sitting here and saying, no, I don't need all that stuff. As long as I have my big screen TV and 137 sports channels. Yeah. Okay, that's a whole different set of stuff, right? That's a whole different set of, of, of something that takes up maybe too much of your time. And you might be sitting here and saying, oh man, I don't, I don't have stuff in storage facilities and I don't have 137 sports channels that I'm streaming or paying for. I'm just happy as long as I can sit here with my iPad or, and you know, my, my phone and, and just look at Facebook and Instagram and stuff like that. And all that scrolling, scrolling, scrolling. And if you're not careful, what kind of time bandit can that be? And so, yeah, there are idols that we prop up. And yes, we even carry some of them around in our pocket if we're not careful. We have all these idols that we've got. Things that on the surface we can say, oh, it can be used for good. But then, like anything that can be used for good, there's too much of a good thing. And it can become negative. 
it can be some, become something that subtly wedges itself between us and a relationship with the Almighty Father, who, as we've already mentioned, seeks a relationship with us. Verse in Colossians, a couple of verses in Colossians 2, refer to uh, something that was going on in this place called Colossae, that there was a cult of angel worshipers. And if you think about Scripture, you think about the Bible, there are a number of times that people encounter angels. And as is sometimes the case, they will bow down to the angels. And the angels will tell them, don't bow to me. And rightfully so, because the angel is simply one of God's servants, one of God's messengers, a ministering spirit. And they will say, oh, get up. Don't worship me. I'm nothing special. I'm just here to deliver a message. But there became a problem in Colossae with people saying, well, you know what? It's not enough. We need something else to worship. And so Paul writes, Do not let anyone who delights in false humility and the worship of angels disqualify you for the prize. Such a person goes into great detail about what he has seen and his unspiritual mind puffs him up with idle notions. He has lost connection with the head from whom the whole body, supported and held together by its ligaments and sinews, grows as God causes it to grow. So he's saying, and this is a theme in Colossians, is that Christ is supreme. That it's not Christ and, it's Christ only. And so Paul is saying, hey, don't be discouraged by those people who are worshiping angels. Because they have strayed from the truth. It's like they wanted some backup just in case. No different than those folks in Athens who said, Wow, look, we, we, we want all, all these gods, but you know, just in case we've missed one, let's erect something for them and say to an unknown god, they wanted backup just in case. If we're not careful, church, we become guilty of people who need something else above a relationship with God to fulfill us. We live a life that says, I need some backup just in case. As we work toward a conclusion of our time together this morning, 1 Corinthians 8, 6. But for us there is one God, the Father, by whom all things were created and for whom we live. And there is one Lord, Jesus Christ, through whom all things were created and through whom we live. To John 14, Philip says to Jesus, you know, show us the Father. Show us the Father. And oh, Jesus responds to that. But it's sort of a 
insulting statement if we really think about it. Show us the Father. Jesus said, you've seen me, you've seen the Father. What he could have said is, Philip and all the rest of you, did you not see me heal the people of leprosy? Did you not see me make the lame walk again? Did you not see me touch the eyes of the blind and allow them to see once again? Maybe, maybe that's not enough. Did you see me raise the dead back to life? Jairus, the synagogue leader's daughter, the widow's son at a place called Nain, and even just outside of Jerusalem, a couple miles down the road, his dear friend Lazarus. But maybe that wasn't enough. Maybe you needed something more. And they're crying out, we just want to see God. And then came the children. All those mamas bringing their children to Jesus and when they start crying, they put the pacifiers in their mouth and there was that one It was a little unpleasant and awkward that needed to be changed and so she was taking care of him. And, and then the apostles said, whoa, 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 you know, y'all need to get out of here. It's noisy, doesn't smell so good, y'all just need to get out of here because we're, we're about the kingdom and we're trying to see the kingdom right here. And then Jesus says, no, no, don't, don't send them away. Let them come closer. For they are the kingdom. And then he blesses them. And said, this is the kingdom right here. Don't you get it? Sometimes the kingdom makes too much noise. And sometimes the kingdom doesn't smell as good as we'd like it to. And there they were saying, but we just want to see God. And when all that wasn't enough, he picked up a cross and he carried it up a hill. And he looked down at every one of us and said, now do you see God? Or maybe this isn't enough. Maybe you need backup just in case. There's one God and there's one Savior. And let us live out our lives. And I'm preaching to myself. Let us live out our lives as if we really believe that. I'm not saying... It's a sin to watch a ball game. And I'm not saying it's a sin to go shopping. I'm not saying it's a sin to look at social media. 
I do all those things at some point. The problem is when we value those things more than we value a relationship with a Savior who carried a cross up a hill and allowed Himself to be nailed to it for each and every one of us. Church family, there's only one God and we do not need any backup. He is and always will be enough. If you're with us this morning, 